0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. We're looking at Amos chapter 8 tonight, which is on page 923 in the Church Bibles. It'll be a great help if you can keep them open at that page. Let's pray for God's help as we look at his word tonight. Father, we love to make plans about our future, we love to dream dreams and to have all kinds of ideas about what we might do and what we might become. Father, please help us tonight to be wise about our futures, wise about how you see us, how you see the world, and how the future of the world will be. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. Prince George has been in the news this week. I'm sure all of you royalists out there know that it's his birthday, his first birthday on Tuesday. Incredibly exciting. Uh, And as his birthday draws near, people have been speculating about what kind of prince he will grow up to be. Will he be like his dad? good-looking, popular, or will he be more like his granddad? Uh, Of course, no one really knows. Uh, (laughs) No one really knows. Um, In fact, you can't tell much from a a one-year-old baby what they will be like in the future. Of course, that doesn't stop speculation. One tabloid newspaper commissioned an artist this week to Um, look at all the data we have available to look at um, the parents and grandparents to look at what the baby's like now uh, Prince George and to look at his background his potential and this artist was asked to put together a picture of what they think this baby will look like when he's 18 years old here's the next picture what do you think I don't know Uh, of course it's all pure speculation no one knows what Prince George will look like in uh, 17 years time Well, what about us? What will we be like in about 20 years' time? I guess some of us don't want to think about that, perhaps. Well, fear not. You can download an app from the internet. It's, in fact, free. And it takes all the raw data available. It takes your picture. And it works out what you will look like in 20 years' time. And this is what I will look like in 20 years' time. (laughs) I should say it's pure speculation. So, um... (laughs) Uh, We can't be sure uh, what the future will look like for us. Except when we turn to Amos chapter 8, we discover that we can be certain about the future. At least the people of Israel could. You see, Amos chapter 8 contains two snapshots of the people of God. It contains a snapshot of what they're like in the present, uh, the one-year-old version if you like. And then it contains a snapshot of what they'll be like in the future, the sort of 18-year-old version. And this isn't pure speculation. This is the very word of God to his people to show them what their future will be like. Uh, The first snapshot is there in verses 4 to 8, as Amos describes what the people are like in in their present day. And then his focus shifts to the future. Uh, Notice um, how that shift takes place. Um, in verse 9, he talks about in that day, a future day, or verse 11, the days are coming, or verse 13, in that day. Do You see, it? it's a future snapshot of what will happen to God's people. It is not speculation, it is God's word. And it is a scary future for these people. Last week, at the start of Amos chapter 8, we heard that the time was now ripe, for the people of Israel, ripe for judgment. And so in verse two, the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people, Israel. I will spare them no longer. Chapter eight is not a warning to these people, to the nation of Israel. They've been warned throughout this book of Amos. And by chapter eight, It's now too late for these people. The Lord says, because of what you are now like in the present, there is no hope for you. Your future has been decided. This is what you will become in the days and years to come. This chapter is not here for the benefit of the nation of Israel. It is here for us tonight. We are invited to look at this present portrait of the people of God and to compare ourselves to that picture. What is our heart like? How do we compare? And once we made that comparison, we are made wise to know what our future will look like. And the warning here tonight is to not be like the people of Israel, for their certain future was a scary future. It is a warning uh, to be different from them. So let's dive into the details of Amos chapter 8 and let's first look at this present picture of God's people and we see that they are a people far from God. I guess these verses in many ways provide us a summary of what we've been seeing these last seven weeks from the book of Amos. In just a few verses, I think first of all we see a people far from God because they're far from compassion. Look at verse 4. Uh, hear this, you who trample the needy, and do away with the poor of the land. We've heard that before in chapter 2 of Amos. You can imagine this scenario. There's a particular farmer whose crops have failed. Uh, this farmer is not particularly well off. He doesn't have lots of uh, reserve grain. And so he's desperate to feed his family through the winter. And so he goes to a, a much more wealthy neighbor who has got lots of spare grain... And he takes what little money he has left in the bank and he says to this rich neighbor, neighbor, would you um, sell me some of your grain so that I can feed my family through the winter? Now, how does this rich neighbor respond? He knows that his uh, poor neighbor is desperate. He has no grain. He has uh, no way of getting more food. Uh, So how does he respond? Well, like any good businessman, he puts the price up. Supply and demand. Why not make a bigger profit if you can? what's wrong with that? This man is willing to pay the higher price, why not go for it? And so the rich man charges the poor man more money for his grain. Uh, The poor man buys the grain, but he spent all his money doing so. He survives the first winter, but he has no grain left to plant more seed for the next year's crop. And when that one uh, fails, he he then has no money left to buy further seed for uh, for his family the second winter. And he goes back to his rich neighbor again with nothing in his hand this time. And All he can do is sell himself to buy more grain. And so, what does this rich neighbor do for his desperate friend? Does he give him a fair price? No. Verse 6 He buys the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. A pair of sandals for a life. They weren't worth much back then, they're not worth much now. This rich neighbor is exploiting his poor neighbor. He's ripping him off. He's taking advantage of the circumstances. Now you could say it's market forces, supply and demand, why not? And of course we live in a world where that is so often the case. But the Lord is looking for people who live differently, who don't simply look for how much profit they can make, but who are rather compassionate for those in need with an eye for others and yet God's people were far from compassion and I guess we are invited to think about how we view those around us who are in need if we're in business it might mean not making as much profit, it might mean not being promoted as quickly if we take this mindset of being compassionate for those in need are people far from God because they are far from compassion Next, a people far from worship, verse 5. The people say, when will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath be ended, that we may market wheat? I'm sure we've all been there, maybe when we're back at school, maybe in a math class, and the class was just going on and on and on and we just could not wait for it to end and our mind was distracted. We're thinking about maybe the summer holidays and where we could be next or maybe we've been in a business meeting and it just didn't capture our imagination and we were thinking about what we could do um, in the afternoon or the next day. Uh, maybe we've even come to a church service. Uh, maybe even tonight during the sermon and we just wish we could be somewhere else. Well, that was the default perspective of the people of Israel when it came to their Sabbath days their religious festivals you see the temples were humming they were packed full of people they were thriving numerically but it was all a sham because behind every keen face was a heart which would actually rather be out making money selling produce improving their financial position you see their worship was a sham It had become hollow. They were far more concerned with uh, the rest of the week, with how they could progress their own position in life, with their own wealth, and they couldn't care less about the Lord they had come to worship. Their worship was all duty, all habit, all show, and there was no joy, no authenticity, no heart. And this is so often how it is, just before the end, isn't it? Just before people decide that they can't be bothered with God, they can't be bothered with being a Christian anymore. There is so often a season where it is just habit, just routine, just show. Or you go to all the services, you go to all the small groups, you go to all the things you should go to, but somehow a few years ago your heart has gone out of it you sit through sermon after sermon thinking about Monday morning and, and what shirt you'll wear to work, and your heart is not in the worship. It can be a scary thing to admit that's what's happening. We know that that shouldn't be happening. I do wonder if there are some people here tonight who know that has been your experience these last few months or perhaps years. I can say in my own life that there have been seasons when that has been my experience as a Christian where it's been more about habit and show than about heart. And if that is your position here tonight, please come and speak to me or come and speak to someone else. Come and uh, talk it through. I'd love to help you if that is you tonight. But it is serious when we are far from worship, far from true worship, Next, a people far from God because they are far from integrity. Second half of uh, verse 5. The people were skimping the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales. I suppose the modern day version of this would be to turn the mileage back on your car before you sell it to get a bigger profit, or to omit certain details in your tax return to improve your lot. And why not, if you can do it, if your heart has stopped worshipping the Lord, if you're basically preoccupied with how you can progress your own lot in life, why not try to see how far you can get? Why not bend the books and see if you can get away with it? Why not cheat and lie? That is what the people were doing, a people far from integrity. And lastly, under this first heading, the people were far from God because they were far from humility. Verse 7. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. When you swear an oath, you're meant to swear by something which is firm and established and enduring. And on two other occasions in Amos, the Lord has sworn by just such a thing. Uh, In chapter 4, he swore by his holiness That's sure and steadfast and firm, fair enough. Then in 6 verse 8, God swore by himself. Well, again, that's a very sure, firm, steadfast thing to swear by. But do you see here the surprise, Amos 8 verse 7? God swears by the pride of Jacob. Why? Well, it is cutting irony. Because the pride of Jacob is also firm and steadfast and unchangeable. We are on the right track, the people were saying. Our houses are getting bigger. Our borders are expanding. Our peace is more established. We must be doing the right thing, they were saying. And despite all the warnings of the prophet, their pride remained unshakable, unmovable, And so the Lord, with cutting irony, says, I swear by the pride of Jacob. It is a shocking picture. And so the Lord says, I will never forget anything they have done. That is the present picture. A people far from God, In fact, this has been the picture throughout Amos. Despite all the warnings, all the reminders, God's people have not changed, they have not repented. And so the time has come for them. Their future is now certain. What about us here tonight? As we hold our hearts up to this present picture of God's people, how do we compare How are we doing over the last seven weeks? We've heard lots of strong words from the Lord to us about how we should live, lots of clear warnings. How have we responded in our hearts to those warnings? Have we bowed the knee at times, I guess, in shame? Have we run to the cross to find fresh forgiveness? Or have we been like the people of Israel, planning what shirt we will wear on Monday morning? That is the present picture of the people of God. What about the future picture? That's our second point, the future picture. What will this prosperous, complacent people be like in a few years' time? They will be a people judged by God. Now and again, I quite like to watch that TV program, Grand Designs. I guess that's what happens when you become married. Um, I love those moments towards the end of the program when um, you know, there's been a project on the go, there's been a, a, very, a derelict barn or a run-down house, and the, the couple have bought it, and they have a great design to do it up. And throughout the program, you've watched them labor and work away in this wreck on this derelict property. And at some point near the end, after all the work's been done, you're all kind of waiting for the kind of final moment when the cameras reveal the finished grand design. It's that kind of ooh moment when you see all that's been done on the new property. And it can be a wonderful moment when you see um, how um, the past picture has been transformed into a new, a new wonderful future reality. It's a great transformation. And I guess we enjoy that. It's, it's a good thing to celebrate that transformation as people show their skill and ability. But here tonight we have in Amos 8, as we look from the, the first picture to the second picture, it's not so much that moment of ooh and wonder of the Grand Designs program, but it's rather... More a moment of of a grand disaster as God pulls back the curtain to reveal what his people will look like in the future. It's not a moment of excitement. It's a moment of terror. You see, the first picture was taken at a time of prosperity, a time of security, a time of optimism. The second picture is a picture when all is lost. The prosperous people are now a people judged by God. Well, what does this judgment look like? I think there are at least four signs of judgment in this uh, second section. Uh, first of all, there, there are earthquakes, verse 8. Will not the land tremble for this, and all who live in, in it mourn? The land will rise like the Nile, and it will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. It's a picture of the land rising and falling. It could be a picture of a literal earthquake. Certainly back in Amos chapter 1, verse 1, he mentions an earthquake that comes two years later. That could be the fulfillment of this prophecy. I guess we don't know. But it is a picture of a land that is in turmoil, a land in great upheaval, writhing like a river, writhing in flood, a land of great distress. An earthquake is coming. Next, Darkness is coming. Verse nine. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. No natural darkness. The sun doesn't set at lunchtime. And yet Amos says a day is coming when the nation will be darkened at, at noon. A sign of the Lord's anger, the Lord's wrath. There will be mourning, verse 10. I will turn your religious feasts into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. It is ironic that the people were finding these festivals, these Sabbath days, a bit of a chore a bit of a bore, wishing they could be done with and that they could rush on to the real business of their week. And now the Lord says, Well, okay, so you don't like your festivals, you don't like the celebrations, you don't like the, the special days. Well, fair enough. I will take away the feasts and the celebrations and I will replace them with tears and with mourning. Lastly, there will be hunger and thirst. Verse 11, the days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the lands, not a famine of food or thirst but for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Again, it is ironic, is it not, that the people were getting fed up with hearing the word of the Lord. Remember chapter 7, Amaziah, the false prophet, tried to silence Amos, the true prophet. Back in chapter two, the people were silencing the prophets. Please don't speak to us. We've had enough of the word of the Lord. Please stop. And so in chapter eight, God says, fine. You don't want to hear from me? I'll give you your wish. You won't ever hear from me again. And the Lord takes away his word, his truth, his revelation. He takes away any chance of peace, of hope, of security as he takes away his word and there is a famine in the land. Verse 12 people will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east searching for the word of the Lord but they will not find it. From sea to sea I think from the Dead Sea to the Mediterranean Sea from east to west and then you think that he would say, then, from, from north to south. But he doesn't say that, does he? He says, from north to east. Now, I don't want to labour the point. We can't be sure why he sort of misses out the obvious southern reference. But I think the point is this. Do you know what's down south? Judah. Jerusalem. The temple. Where they should have been going to worship the place where God revealed himself to his people and it seems that in their pride as they staggered around longing for some morsel to feed themselves they knew deep down inside that down south that's where the answer was but such is the human heart that when pride grips us we refuse to go to the very place we know we'll find the answer if it means admitting we were wrong in the first place and isn't that the way People longing for answers in this world, staggering around trying to make sense of life, and yet they refuse to turn to the Bible because they are afraid that in the Bible they will find the very answer they know they need, but they don't want to find there. And so our nation staggers, hungry and thirsting for answers, and yet they do not find it a sign of judgment. So instead of turning to the true God for truth, the people turn, verse 14, to false gods, idols who are silent, mute, lifeless, and they try to have their deepest needs met there and they do not find that that is the case. It's a sign of God's judgment that people stagger around worshipping pieces of wood, looking for answers and finding nothing. Nothing. A people judged by God. We've seen that present picture of God's people. A picture who, of people who think they're prosperous and successful, but of people who are far from God in the present. And God has said, enough is enough. Your, your future is now certain. In the coming months and years, Israel, you will now certainly face judgment. Here are the signs that the people did experience And the judgment culminates in chapter 9, that is for next week, in some, I guess, terrifying words of judgment. But by Amos chapter 8, it is too late for Israel. Her future has already been decided because of how she has lived in the present And I guess we have to ask ourselves tonight, at the end of this series, we have one more week to go, but we are coming to the end of it, we have to ask ourselves in what ways we are tempted to head down that route that Israel took, where our hearts are tempted to wander from the Lord. This chapter is here to warn us. Even if our present looks good, even if we feel secure and stable now, we must compare ourselves to that Picture of the people of God. And so it is a warning for us tonight. And I've struggled this week because as I've looked at the warning, I've seen myself in that present picture. I see myself with a heart that would much prefer to worship other things than worship God. I much prefer to serve my own interests than others. I am a person who so often struggles to love those who need to be loved. And it is a sobering message. Where can we go when we see what our hearts are like? Just as we finish, I think this chapter is here to warn us, but to also prepare us for where we will find rescue. Where else in the scriptures do we read about an earthquake? Where else do we hear about darkness at lunchtime? Where else do we hear about an only son being killed? Where else do we hear about loved ones mourning? Where else do we hear about someone who is thirsty and in great need? Where else do we hear about God pouring out his wrath? You see, God works in patterns, and He judges in patterns, and He rescues. And as we read Amos chapter 8, we must, we must fly forward to that awesome and terrible day when another man faced God's judgment. The innocent man, Jesus Christ. When I was younger, I used to enjoy playing practical jokes with my brothers. I've got two brothers. And um, one of my favorites was the, the practical joke involving a dictionary on top of the bedroom door. Do, do you know it? Um, it's quite simple, really. It's, it's quite harsh as well. But uh, you, you, you open your door a little bit and you take the biggest dictionary you can find and you, you place it on top of the door. So it's just sort of balancing there. Just the slightest nudge of the door will send the dictionary crashing down. So I would you know, set up the trap and then I would go somewhere nearby and I would wait. Of course, it doesn't work if you forget about the trap and you then sort of, an hour later, walk through the same door. Um, you had to wait. But sure enough, a while later, you'd hear a noise of a creak of the door and then a, ow! Oh! And when you heard that noise, you knew what had happened and you knew that the way was then open. It was safe. Once the dictionary had fallen once, it wouldn't fall again on you. And what was true for a practical joke is also true when it comes to the Lord's judgment. You see, when people live like the people of Israel, God will judge those actions. He sees the human heart and he will not let those things go. Judgment will come for each and every sin. It came for the people of Israel. I guess the question for us tonight is, who's gonna experience the judgment we deserve? Who's gonna take the hit? Will it be us? Because God will judge our sin, or will it be that innocent man, Jesus, who experienced the earthquake and the darkening and the agony of the cross? Tonight is a warning, but it's also preparation for rescue. And as we see, I guess, our own helplessness, as we see what our hearts are really like, I think we are meant to to drive ourselves once again to the foot of the cross, where judgment fell once and for all on the Lord Jesus. In a very real sense, our world is beginning to experience this judgment from Amos chapter 8. There is upheaval in the world. Look at the news this week. What a dreadful week we've had in the world. Terrible things happening. A world experiencing darkness. There is mourning and tears. There is the drought of the word of God. These are signs in a very general way of God's judgments. They are a foretaste of the great and final judgment that will come. Yes, it will come someday. But for all those who are sheltering in the person of Jesus Christ, that judgment has already fallen. And the way is now clear from here into eternity. And as we come to share this wonderful, precious meal together, the Lord's Supper, let us remember afresh, that this meal reminds us of the judgment the Lord Jesus experienced in his death. Let us rejoice that even though our hearts are so often like the people of Israel, he has taken the hit for us. Let's pray. Father, we confess tonight that our futures looks scary we live in a world full of fears and turmoil and we know that you will judge Father we thank you once again so much that the Lord Jesus Christ has stepped in he has taken the judgment we deserve Father please help us to never think that we are somehow beyond or above the need for that rescue and may we Once again rejoice at the foot of the cross tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.